0: Well, I've got a bumper sticker to show you. Let me, let me ask you, have you seen this before? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you see it all over the place, don't you? I, I don't know of anything that is as obvious in the culture that we have today as uh, coexist, only not written with the regular letters we would use normally, but, but uh, written like this. And I confess to you that I have two reactions when I see that bumper sticker and I see it a lot and you see it a lot and you may see it in other places behind, beside bumper stickers. My first reaction is to say, well, of course. I mean, of course coexist. I, I can't, I don't want to force my faith on anybody. That's the worst thing I could do. I can't do it for one thing, but, but even if I could do it, I, I don't want to do it. I really believe that God created men and women in His image and his likeness, and, and that means immediately and automatically I have to treat everybody, whoever they are, whatever they believe, with respect and with a degree of grace and, and get the truth to them if I can. But coexist, well, of course. But I, but I also have another reaction, and that other reaction stems from a, a feel I have, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's kind of a feel that I have that, that by coexist, some people at least mean everybody's faith is equal. Equally true, so we coexist not only because we respect each other, but we coexist because nobody really has a leg up on this thing uh, called truth and and the eternal issues of life. And to that I say, no, 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 I, I I can't agree with that one. In fact, when I think of that side of the whole picture of that bumper sticker, I end up asking the question, which God? because really it symbolizes a number of different faith positions, a number of gods. And so I want to add the question into the mix of which god coexist? Yeah, in terms of respecting each other and, and uh, allowing for different beliefs and so forth. And that's, that's wonderful and that's great and that's what our, our culture is supposed to be. And I want to be a part of that. But, but when it comes to the question of which god, I have uh, tremendous problems if I want to say everybody is the same. In fact, I happen to belong to a faith which says there is only one way to the one true God. (laughs) So that really puts me in a spot where I have to say which God because I just can't buy this idea that all the gods are equal and they're all the same. Is it the God of Christianity or is it the God of Judaism or is it the God of Buddhism or is it the God of Scientology or is it the God of uh, Hindu faith or is it the God... I mean, there's a whole bunch of answers out there in terms of which God? Now that's a question a lot of people are asking and they're not really affiliated with any religious group. You know, they're asking which God? What's she like? What's he like? I've, I've seen the arguments and so I, I can believe that there's a God, but what I wanna know beyond that is uh, what's she like? Is she far away or is she close? Is he uh, caring or uncaring? Is he uh, grace-filled or hate-filled? Does she want to divide and conquer or does she want to unify and bring together? So, you know, even if you don't identify with a a group, if you sign the list and say you're a nun, not N-U-N, but if you're a nun, N-O-N-E, you know? Even then, you end up asking this question, which god? I think that's an important question, because I I really believe from my experience and what I've seen with people over the years, and I've got a lot of years, and I've seen a lot of people, but what I've seen with people over the years is that the answer to that question really directs them in life, and in fact, when they hit detours, and when they have a collision, and when they, they hit a stop sign, and when they have a fork in the road, it really directs how they're gonna respond to the traffic conditions of life. So the question, which God, is uh, major importance. Jesus has an answer to that question. And uh, you know ahead of time, I confess to you that I accept Jesus' answer to the question. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's fine. You're more than welcome. And in fact, you're wanted here at, not wanted in the in the picture in the post office sense, but you're wanted because <laughs> people care about trying to help you think through that question. So this may not be a final time for you to make a decision about that question, but I hope it will contribute to it once you see a little bit of what Jesus thinks about the answer to that question. And I want to turn us this, this morning to a passage in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, where Jesus has a conversation, in, in particular with his disciples at this point, and he gives answer to that question. So let, let me read that to you, if I can, please. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man Man, they called Jesus, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Look closely at that encounter that Jesus has with this man, and I think if you look closely in in definitions, you're only going to find two definitions of God. And and, uh, there's one, and then there's the other one. And I want to go through both of them and see if you can't relate to the two definitions of God that are contained in that passage. One definition of God is the God we buy. The, The God we buy. That is surely on the minds of the disciples, and later it's on the mind of the Jewish leaders who are there, too. But initially, it's just the disciples who are talking about the God we buy. You might call him the God of religion. Uh, We buy his blessing by being good. If we're good, he'll be good. If we're bad, he'll be bad. Um, That's what they were saying in verse 2 when they said, is it him or is it his parents? I mean, somebody had to be bad or God wouldn't have allowed something bad to happen to him. So if he was good, it wouldn't happen. If he was bad, that's what happens. Who was bad? So was it him or was it his parents that caused this problem? Now, That's not a new idea even in the first century, certainly not a new idea now, but it's not a new idea even in the first century. If you go back in your mind to a man by the name of Job, you've heard of Job, even if you've never read the Bible, you've heard of Job, you'll find that Job and his friends seem to have the same picture of God, the God we buy. Listen to this short passage in chapter 4, verse 7, where one of his so-called friends is instructing him and trying to help him. He says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. There it is. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. All the breath of God, at the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. That's the same same God, the God we buy. The same God that one of my favorite authors used to call the household gods of ancient times. Turns out those household gods are not really ancient in any sense, they have always been around whether they're defined as one God or they're defined as many gods, they're still there. And they're there because it makes sense. That's why they're there. I mean, when we think about it, well, of course, that's the way life works. You know, you do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good. What do we say? We say what goes around comes around. We go to the deli and we see a a tip jar there. And what's on the tip jar? Good karma. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Put some money in the jar, it's gonna be okay for you. Yeah, that, that's the God we buy. That's a funny example of it, but that's basically what's going on there. It's the God we buy. Good reason for us to think in those terms. Now, the, the disciples and the, and the uh, leaders besides them that we haven't read about who would say, this is the God we buy, and that's the definition of God for them, it, it's kind of complicated for them because they're trying to tread a narrow area of ground. They're, they're trying not to blame God for the bad things that happen, but at the same time, they're trying to stay within the law which says that uh, what I do affects other generations. In fact, that's, that's throughout the Old Testament, and I have just one verse that, or passage that would teach that kind of idea. Here it is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them, the false gods, or worship them, for... I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What I choose to do affects future generations. We all know that. We we don't like to think of it in terms of our own kids, what we do affects our own kids, but it does. For good or for bad, either way, it really does. And if you, if you don't think that's true, then you don't know anything about racism and how it passes down through the generations. You don't know much about hatred, and you don't know much about intolerance, and you don't know much about anger, and, and thank God you don't know much about those. But honestly, for most of us, we know something about that. And those things pass down, even as the Scripture says they pass down, and they result in pain. But listen law of Moses never says, never says that there's always sin behind a problem. Never says that. It says that it passes down, true, no, no doubt about that. And in that sense, because God is sovereign, he passes it down, understand that. But it never says that because I'm addicted, my kids have to be. That because I'm intolerant, my kids have to be. That because I've Wasted myself. My kids have to inherit the same kinds of problems that I have. Never says that. So be careful what you draw as a conclusion, even from that passage of Scripture. So it makes sense. So it makes sense to them. It makes sense to us. A God, we buy. We buy and by good. We don't buy and buy bad. The God, we buy. But it's tragic. It is tragic for two reasons when we allow that thing to to fester inside of our thinking and we allow that to captivate our thinking. And one reason it's tragic, tragic is because it makes us think that the blessing we get is deserved and the tragedy that somebody else gets is deserved. And what that puts us on, no matter how much tragedy we've seen, we've seen enough blessing to think that God has blessed me, but he hasn't blessed you. And the reason why he hasn't blessed you is because of who you are, so so if if you have weight problems, it's because you don't have any self-control. You've never thought that. I have, sure I have. It's the God we buy, that's who I'm talking about, that's what makes me think it, because I think I get good because I've been good and I get bad because I've been bad. Poor people don't try, that's their problem. That's the God we buy. That's who it's talking about, the God we buy. We've been good, God blesses us. We've been bad, God curses us. They've been bad, God curses them, I've been good, God blesses me. It's a sad way to go through life, but that's what the impact is. The other other problem with it, and the reason why it's so tragic, is because it, it puts me on a treadmill. If I run fast enough and I run well enough and I I, I keep control of everything I do and I do all kinds of good things, then, then the day is going to come when God's going to say, okay, Peter, you did enough. It's okay. Come on in. Ah, sorry. That's like trying to fill the ocean with a teaspoon. It's going to take a long time, folks. And truth is, there's not enough time for me to fill the ocean with the teaspoon full of water. Teaspoon and teaspoon, and teaspoon. So it lands me in this place where I can never come into a right relationship with God because it depends on me, and I don't have it in me to make it. That's the fruit of the God we buy. Well, you can take that God we buy, or you can choose the God who bought us. That's the other alternative that's here. In fact, Jesus speaks of him in verse 3. Listen to what he says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. He had to suffer so that the works of God, wait a minute, I don't think I like that picture of God. The man had to suffer so that God could be seen? Are you kidding me? Is that what Jesus teaches? Well, it's what he said. So I have to conclude that's what he teaches, it's what he said, that this man is suffering now so that that God can be seen. Let's drill deeper into this this God that Jesus is talking about, the God who bought us. Because when we look at the God who bought us, we have to recognize that he has priorities. He has a first and a second priority. Let me tell you what they are. The first priority for God, his, his first concern is his glory. You say, I don't think I'm liking this. This doesn't sound right to me. God's more concerned about his glory than he is about you and me? Yeah. Yes, he is. Ample evidence of that in the Bible. You can find it all over the place. We are to declare his glory among the nations, First Chronicles, Old Testament passage. In fact, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory from the Psalms. You say that's self-centered. That's what I teach my kids not to be. How can I ever defend God for being that, which I teach my kids not to be? And my answer is that it's okay for him to be that way because it's the right order of things. It's it's the right order of things. You say, I don't think I like that. Oh, yes, you do. There's an instinctive part of this that says there is a right order of things, isn't there? In fact, one of the places we see that is when We see somebody else in the way they fawn on their kids. Oh man, that Peter and Ilona, they just live for their kids and now they're grandkids, can't they get over it? They put everything else aside for their kids. Now, you know, we instinctively know that kids need our attention and grandkids and and we have to put things aside for our kids and our grandkids and we have to take care of them and they, they do take a priority, but we also know that that can get out of balance. If they're the only thing in my life, then there's other things missing. In fact, my relationship with Ilona is missing if the grandkids are my only thing that I care about. And her for me as well. If, if, if all I have is this outer, out of order kind of relationship with my kids or my grandkids, then, then you know as well as I can do that, that we make lousy decisions. We spoil our kids. We don't take care of them. We don't teach them to be tough. We don't teach them to take care of themselves because we're always hovering. We're the helicopter, mom and dad, and we take care of them all the time and nothing happens to them because we're always watching over them. Is that good? No, that's not good. Somebody told me a long time ago, and I've said it a lot of times, you may have heard it before, but somebody told me if I love Ilona the way I need to love Ilona, and Ilona loves me the way she needs to love me, our kids will be okay. Why? Well, because they'll be secure. Why? Because there's a the right order of things. It's <laughs> the way it works. Just the way, like it? I don't, I don't care if you like it. It's the way it is. Doesn't matter if I like it or not. That's the way it is. And when we add God to the picture, all I'm saying is that God says, I'm the most important person in the universe, and I have to be first. Even if that means difficulty and pain for other people, it it means that I have to be first. Even if it means difficulty for you, Peter, and for you, Ilona, then I have to come first. God's first concern is for his glory. It's the right order of things. I said there's a second concern, and the second concern is his family. His family, adopting children, you and me, and forming a family that will love him and respond to him and and do what he asks them to do. That's where the good news comes in. Because God has this overarching plan that that after his glory, and through this his glory is is seen, his family. Family will come together. There'll be adopted children all over the place, and those adopted children will form a family, and God goes to great lengths to make sure that this happens. There's an amazing passage in Acts chapter 17 that just strikes. You know, when I see migrant people roaming all over the world, I can't help but think that some of this is in process. Chapter 17, verse 26, this blows my mind. says, from one man, he, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history, and the boundaries of their lands. Imagine, get this idea. God is moving people around from place to place and he's appointing them to live here and appointing them to live here and that surely includes the individuals within those groups. They're being appointed to live in different places. And then he says, verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. Now what that means to me is that God took me all the way to Japan in the Air Force in 1966 he brought me to a place where I had no more resources to fill my life. He brought me through a, a period of self reform in which I found out that even with self reform, I still had this empty hole in my, my, my heart that only God could fill. And then he, then he made sure I got to Yokosuka, Japan, where I'd hear the gospel with some other guys down there that I could respect service people, men, men at that time. Maybe there were women there at the Servicemen Center, likewise. Strong, husky. Uh, great men, and they would talk about their faith in Jesus Christ, and about two weekends after that, on a Wednesday night, June 8th, 1966, I bowed beside my bed, and I gave my heart to Jesus because there was no other resource. And did God have to take me to Japan? I guess. Did God have to bring me through a drunken period in my life? I guess. Did God have to bring me through reform to make sure that, that, that my self-reform was inadequate? I guess. I don't know, but he moved me from place to place to make sure that I came to the point where I finally gave my heart to Jesus and my life began to change. That's the God who bought me. I couldn't buy him. There's no way I could buy him. I tried to buy him by, by straightening up my life, but I, but I couldn't. He bought me. When I say he bought me, I reflect Jesus' words. Listen to this. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, that is a purchase. It's a counting term in the first century in the Koine Greek, a ransom. See, see the the picture of the New Testament is that I've been taken captive, I have been kidnapped, as it were, by the enemy of our souls, and he has pointed me in a direction that is exactly the opposite of the direction that God wants me to go in, and he has caused me to, to ignore God and he has caused me not only to ignore God but to, to revile God and to raise my fist against God and to deny his very existence or if I confess his existence, to say I don't need him, I don't want him, please leave me alone, go away, go do something else. But this God who I, whom, I, whom I despise and, and who I, if I don't despise him, I just push him away, and that's the same as despising him. This God who I despise, or I push away, cares so much, remember what it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten one and only son. He loves me so much that he gave his one and only son because he's not content with the enmity that exists between us, and so he says, no, Peter, that's not okay. And in fact, I'm going to do something about it. You've proven you can't do anything about it. I'm going to do something about it. And what am I going to do? I'm going to pay the ransom. because Somebody else has captured your heart. I'm paying the ransom because I can't live with this. I'm going to buy, us, buy you back. I'm going to purchase your pardon that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the picture of the Bible. That's the God who loves me like that, and that's the God who will pay that kind of ransom for me. He is the God who buys me. He is the God who purchases me. He is the God who bought me. Now, why? Why would I chase after a God and try to buy him if there's a God out there who loves me so much that he pays for me? I mean, come on. That doesn't make sense to me. It made sense until still small voice, taking the input that I'd had and the Bible verses that I'd learned and the testimonies that I'd heard at the servicemen center in Yakuska, but then all of a sudden on June 8th, 1966, I said, oh, this is crazy. And I didn't know the terms then, but, but looking back now, what I was really saying is, I've been trying to buy him. I can't buy him. He paid the price for me. How how can I say no to that? I could never buy his pardon, but he, in his perfect sons, could buy mine. And he did. He took my place before the judge. He stretched out his arms on the cross. He said, Father, judge me, not him. I'm purchasing his forgiveness. He cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because on those moments on the cross, those hours on the cross, he was the judgment, he was the focus of judgment of my sins, not his, because he had none. He he gave his life for me, and finally, when he had fully paid for my sins, he said, it is finished. It's all done. There's nothing more to pay for. It's done. We had a unusual Christmas this year, Amy and Drew and the kids were away and our son is driving a truck cross country, so he wasn't home. Um, uh, Amy and Drew were down in Pennsylvania with his parents and uh, so we decided we're gonna do something different and somehow reach out to people who, uh, as far as we knew, didn't believe and so we hooked up with a woman who works on on, uh, Rutgers campus for international students and she got us an Iraqi family, Muslim, to come to our house for dinner on Christmas. And then Ilona had the bright idea, and I'm so glad she did, that we would invite uh, a former Hindu family that was a part of our church where we served for so many years, uh, young couple, uh, they were former Hindu family who had become Christians, and so we asked these two families to come for Christmas dinner. And, you know, I'm so anal, I'm trying to think of, okay, what do I say? How much do I say, you know? do I get into subjects of faith? Or don't I, don't I say anything about faith? What do I do when I pray? And all this stuff. It's, it's amazing, you know, when, you, when you're talking about people overseas, they wanna talk about faith. It's so much a part of their life. They haven't put it off in a box someplace. So here's the Iraqi man, Muslim, and this former Hindu man, Christian now, from India. And the three of us are sitting in the living room. It happens to be the three of us. And uh, we're talking. and. So finally, safe. The guy from Iraq turns to to them all and says, "So what made you convert?" was <laughs> thinking, really? Did he really ask that question? <laughs> so, I had to, Ilona call me to do something in the kitchen. So I was going out to the kitchen, and but I was listening to the conversation before I left, and 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 finally, finally, I came to a point where. Amal told his story of becoming a Christian when he was in Alabama as a student, and uh, he finally came to the place where Amal said to Saif, somebody challenged me to look at Jesus. And somebody said, just look, see what you think. And so Amal looked. And the last words I heard him say to Saif before I left the room were the telling words He said, I came to the conclusion that this is a God I can believe in. This is a God I can follow. So you end up having to ask the question, which God? And sooner or later, you have to ask ask the question and you have to choose. Will it be the God we buy? Or will it be the God who bought us? I would urge you to keep going if you're in the process of trying to figure that out. If I can help in any way, I'm going to stay up here after the service. If I can help, I'd, I'd love to help. You talk to one of the pastors here, one of the leaders, and they'll help. Keep coming to Renaissance and, 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 and think about that. Which God? The God that we buy? Or the God who has bought us? Let's pray together, please. Father God, thank you for leading us through this uh, time to think together this morning. I pray that you would move us along in the process, even as you did, my friend Amal. And maybe your doing was safe, I don't know. But I pray, Lord, that we might deeply consider this question, because there's only two gods that we can approach. The God who bought us, or that other God that we keep trying to buy. Touch our hearts, Lord, and lead our minds in the right path, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.